Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me today NetSpy's very own Austin Altman and Marissa Allen. Hi, guys. Hello, longtime listener, first time caller. Any Bill's name. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, to start with introductions, Austin is a senior security consultant at NetSpy focused on web and thick client application pen testing, social engineering, and tool development. And Marissa is a security consultant with an emphasis on secure code review. They both went through our NetSpy University pen testing training program, Austin in 2018 and Marissa in 2020. To start off, guys, would love to know more about what your day-to-day looks like at NetSpy. And of course, if there's any interesting stories that you can share, would love to hear that as well. Yeah, so I can start off there. So my day-to-day is typically just focused on testing. Uh, Each week, I'll be assigned a different application for a client. Uh, We help out with making sure the application is secure. Some other responsibilities I take care of would be helping out with pre-sales, helping out with scoping for thick applications, looking into new tools that could help the thick application service. But it's a pretty standard day-to-day. Marissa, what about you? So, hey, Nabil, I don't really have any interesting stories yet, but I think that the most interesting part of my job is digging into web applications or source code, looking for anything that can be a potential exploit. It's like a treasure hunt to me to find potential vulnerabilities of all severity levels. That's pretty much what the day-to-day looks like as well, just communicating with clients, asking what they think is the most vulnerable, what they want me to look at and dig into, to just try to get more of their perspective of what they want out of an application pen test. So yeah, you're just looking for anything vulnerable that an attacker can exploit. You're communicating with clients and really testing your metal. And it's great to get on a call with the client and answer any questions they have, point at your finding and tell them how they can remediate the finding to help keep them safe. So Austin, if I can come back to you for a second, you've been here a little bit longer than Marissa has. Would love to, you know, pick your brain on maybe an interesting story or an interesting vulnerability that you had during one of your engagements. And when I say interesting, it could be something that was really hard to exploit, or it could be something that maybe you just found interesting because of some other reason. So one that initially comes to mind is similar to what Marissa says with uh, going on this treasure hunt through source code to find vulnerabilities is with the thick application service line, we're typically provided with managed uh, assemblies. And part of the testing that we can do there is we can decompile them. They're stored in this intermediate language. It's not stored in machine code. So you can go in the intermediate language and you can go back to how it was written. So we'll use tools like DNSpy to do that, to decompile them. And then we can read through source code if we're lucky. Sometimes it's obfuscated. So this example was obfuscated. It was greatly obfuscated. So it was very difficult to just read. And the application was doing a custom encryption. So we initially asked the client in the interest of time if we were able to maybe get some assistance with turning off the custom encryption so we could just test the underlying requests. They challenged us and said that a real hacker would be able to do it if it wasn't a secure implementation. So we took the challenge. We went well above the scheduled time and 
and we went through the decompiled code, tried to figure out how it was doing the custom encryption with the obfuscation. We finally figured it out. We finally developed a burp tool where we could reverse the encryption, modify the request, and re-encrypt them and send them out. So it was probably a mix of the treasure hunt that Marissa mentioned, plus the challenge that made it exciting and rewarding. Otherwise, we every now and then get some tests for clients that are maybe getting their first pen test, maybe they're a smaller firm or local. And when I test some of those companies and help them shape upcoming security practices, or they have maybe some higher severity vulnerabilities that they get some immediate help with to protect their customers and their business, I find that very rewarding. So if I could dig a little deeper into that particular activity, you know, you said that you went above and beyond the call of duty, right? And spent extra time building out some way to reverse engineer that encryption. Can you share with our audience a little bit more the culture at NetSpy and how you were supported in that effort? Who did you reach out to? And, you know, how did you work as a team to build that solution? So I don't know if there's a better description for it, but my boss's boss, uh, he's one of the practice directors, and he was helping us out because in 2015, he had tested the application initially and discovered the initial vulnerabilities. And then I was testing this, I believe, late 2018, early 2019. So we had some open dialogue there about what existed in the application, what we thought was the method of hiding it. And he's very experienced with the client and helps out with them a lot. So we're working with him on the best way to approach it from not only a technical perspective, but client relationship perspective. And then another one of the coworkers here, uh, who's now a practice director, he was helping out because he was just good with this stuff. So we got all the time support we needed. They said it won't look bad for going over it all. It'll, in fact, help us out with client retention and everything. So we got to expense pasta from Bar La Grassa downstairs. We got to stay late and hang out. So it was kind of a fun hackathon that was fueled by quality pasta. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's obviously one of the reasons why I joined NetSpy as well is because of that culture, collaboration, teamwork across the board, and more importantly, the focus on the customer and what we can do for the customer that's adding value. So love that story. Well, you know, the other thing that we haven't really talked about in too much detail is the NetSpy U program. Each of you went through that at different phases, one of you in 2018, one in 2020. You know, can you share with us your experience there and if there were any highlights that you really enjoyed of that program? I started, I think, in the first round of it. If there had been a round before then, it was even more loose. When we did it, there was only five people total. We started with the January session. The initial stages of that were looking through the Web Application Hackers Handbook Volume 2, I think it's called, or Version 2. And we spent some time going through that. Honestly, went through it surprisingly fast. I think people still today will say well, you move through that surprisingly fast. And then there was a lot of hands-on experience with mentorship, plus these vulnerable applications out there. You can go find DVWA. I think Hackazon is one that people people are using that I've seen. Uh, There's no shortage of vulnerable web applications out there meant for training. So there's a lot of hands-on experience with that. There's mentorship with the consultants. At the time, I think NetSpy was maybe just surpassing 100 employees. So it was under half the size it is now. But there's still plenty of people to go talk to, a very open and collaborative environment where you can just go say, hey, do you have some time to go over some training with me? And people would be more than happy to. Marissa, what about you? 
Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. I think we had one of the larger classes in the 2020 group. It's like, I think we had about eight people, which was large at the time. And now I think it's going to be about 50. So we were one of the larger classes at the time. But, you know, there's even larger classes now. We did the same journey, just like we read the Web Application Hackers Handbook. And we did the same thing, mentoring program. I went through the sixth month Nets by You training program. I'll just kind of try to give you an overview of some of my journey through that program. I think it really gave me... You you know, the knowledge and tools to succeed in my career. And, you know, I think one of the best ways to learn is through education mentorship. And I think that that program really helps future pen testers succeed in that aspect by pairing them with a more seasoned mentor who can provide guidance and answer any questions as well as provide access to things like labs and trainings and testing practice applications. I think that it was a really great training course. And I think that one of the best things to me about the Nets by You experience was meeting so many amazing people. I kind of think that collaboration is a huge part of NetSpy's culture. And I think it really shows, like Austin was saying, because people are just willing to put aside time for you if you have any questions or interested in learning more about their work. They're really great. You can just go to anyone and ask them about something and you can learn a lot from those interactions. When did you take it? I should start with that. I think you're a few class sessions removed from me. Yeah, I took it in February 2020. So it was a little while. Okay. So they had a couple years to mature it. They did. I, I think since I took it, we had one practice director that was leading it. And there wasn't much time reserved away from billable and other things that could be pulling people away from the program. So a lot of it became self-directed. And there's a whole six months to fill with time. And I think that's a challenge is to make sure the six months is not only paced well so that you can follow along, but also it has to be slow enough where it can last over six months, but not too fast where you get lost. So it's a very complicated balance of filling it. I think when you took it, you had some more instructors and more things to do, right? Yeah. So we just had, we had one instructor. So it may have been about the same. We had the wonderful Aaron Yeager, who was instructing us and helping us out. He was really great. You could go to him for questions. He did have billable work. So, you know, there was sometimes where he was pulled away by work, but he always made sure to get back to you and answer any questions you had. You also had your colleagues in the program who you could go to to ask for help. So I had a lot of really wonderful, smart colleagues, and I could also talk to anyone in the company about anything that I was trying to work through and maybe was curious to learn more about. I guess 2020, 2021 has been a blur because I know Jake Carnes is on there. He's an instructor now. So there's two, I think, think they're adding another instructor, but it definitely helps to have people with a lot more time to dedicate towards it. I was looking at the resource planners that we have, and I could see that people are pretty booked up specifically for NetSpyU. So it's matured a lot where we have more people and we have them actually dedicated to the program full time rather than trying to add more time onto their days and still consult where it's, I don't want to say taken more seriously, but it's given a lot more resources. There's definitely additional focus now on making sure that we have the right level of instructors and enough content to make it really worthwhile. And that's come a long way since you started, Austin, and it's a constant evolution and iteration to keep improving that content and instructors and the quality of output that we get from that program as a whole. So Marissa, since you were last on deck, I'll ask you first. How much did a training program such as NetSpy U influence your decision to join NetSpy full-time? I remember meeting with Heather Newmeister at the career fair, 
and she was so nice and great to talk to. Uh, she really took her time to get to know me and my interests. And it was great to hear her talk so passionately about NetSpy and the NetSpy U program. She talked to me about how she could see me in the program and how she thought I'd do well in it. And I was really excited about the training opportunities NetSpy was offering because not a lot of companies are willing to train you on this. And, you know, I didn't have a degree in cybersecurity, just had been researching and doing stuff on my own without much direction, but I had a passion for learning. And some of the other companies I'd been talking to didn't really make me feel as much of an interest or a person as NetSpy did. Like they were polite and all, but NetSpy really made me feel special. And so did the training program because it had a lot of interesting aspects from what Heather had been talking about to me. Austin, what about you? I know you were earlier in the program, but how much did that impact you making a decision to stay at NetSpy long term? It was a very large part of it. So I was put in touch initially to Jake Reynolds, who you may recognize from the Jake from NetSpy videos if you've seen our Resolve marketing. He's a friend of a friend. So that's how we initially met. And he took the time to meet up with me in a coffee shop for an hour or two and walk me through some basics with Burp and some basics with security testing. I was initially looking at a few different directions for my career and had some job offers, but I really wanted to get into pen testing. And there weren't many, I suppose, truly entry-level positions out there. This felt like, sure, you could maybe work at other places that were entry-level and you could quick get a, a refresher on some topics and they could send you out there. But this felt like dedicated training that you wouldn't get elsewhere at that time. NetSpy was local in Minneapolis. That's where I went to school. That's where I had a lot of family. So it was an easy decision to stay local and get the training that I needed. It was nice to not have to move across the country for that type of training and support. And I was able to even start it while I was in my last semester of school. So it was kind of like going to more school at NetSpyU. Yeah. And then the, the other thing, too, is to showcase how successful the program has been, we have now expanded to providing that type of training locally in other regions and other offices that we have. So, for example, now we are holding NetSpyU classes not only in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but also in our office in Portland, Oregon, in Lehigh, Utah. And we are also having talks about having some NetSpy classes in the Boston area because we now have a, a decent amount of consultants here in Boston as well, and potentially one in 2022 in Canada as well. So the, the local aspect of things definitely helps, but it's not just Minneapolis. We are expanding and, and just like the company's expanding, so is our program. Yeah, now you can take it locally across the country. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the next question I have for you guys is, what are some of the most important factors that determine the success or value of a training program like NetSpyU? I learn a lot through discussion, first of all, having people to bounce ideas off of. And if someone gets something and they can explain it maybe a little differently and it clicks, that helps. If you can talk through your issues together and then end up figuring things out as a team, I find that really helpful. I also find repetition to be very important in my learning. Not only repetition, but hands-on repetition. Back in computer science, there's a lot of stuff I didn't get to as hands-on, like machine architecture. We talked about how well, a lot of things from machine architecture, it all clicked once I took security and we got to do hands-on buffer overflows and I realized, oh, this is how things are working in a computer. So the same thing applies in NetSpyU. You can read the Web Application Hacker's Handbook, but SQL injections and trying to bypass different filters and make stuff work with unions, you only get to learn it if you're actually trying it hands-on. And there's a lot of opportunities there. Like I mentioned, there's a lot of vulnerable apps. There's a lot of people that are out there that can help you out with lending you insight into real-world experience. So there's a lot of chance to get hands-on learning. 
Marissa, what about you? Like Austin was saying, collaboration is really important. Learning from different kinds of people, getting other perspective on things, and learning how to learn, I think, is one of the most important things, and getting a lot of hands-on training, just like Austin was saying. I think that all of those things combined and just having the support of other people and having the people you can go to and know you can ask for help is one of the best things about the program because it gives you the support to be able to learn on your own and kind of learn how to learn and just really excel in the field because it's great to go through the training program, but you really have to keep those values and you have to improve on them on your own in order to continue improving in your career. I'd also like to add the support that people are able to provide is really important. Even after the training program, once we get onto client calls, there's kickoffs, demos, and readouts. It's kind of daunting to make sure that you're not saying something dumb or letting people know how new you are to the field. So I never had a shortage of people who are willing to sit in on demo calls and readouts and make sure that things are going well and provide that backup support. This was also present after I finished the program. It's the same thing. People want to make sure that you succeed in the program. So they're willing to help you in any way they can, including just, you know, sitting in on calls with you and making sure that they're available to step in if you need help. And we've even added a mentor program. I don't know if Marissa had one of those. It might have been after, but we have a mentor program where people are assigned and instead of maybe going to your manager and asking these questions like just basic stuff about culture and basic stuff about your application test, uh, you've got a mentor who's more of a buddy that can help you out there and has some dedicated time for that. If you have a report that maybe you're unsure about our standardizations and formatting, they can just take a quick look. Yeah, no, that's fantastic and definitely helpful. And hopefully other future Nets by You graduates will get the same type of value that you guys have gotten so far from the program. So if I shifted gears a little bit, you know, Austin, you kind of talked about how you had a computer science background, and I believe so does Marissa. If we talk a little bit more about the formal education that people get from different universities today, from a cybersecurity or even from an overall technology curriculum, are there certain things you wish? that would be taught in university before you came onto the workforce? Or do you wish that the courses were different, maybe less theoretical, more practical? What type of change would you like to see in those programs that you think would better prepare you for a full-time job? I've given this topic a lot of thought. I'm still loosely active. I still talk with a lot of people from my student organization from school, and we discuss things like this. So I may come across pretentious, but I find the computer science degree to be a study of the science of computation, where it's not so much training you to be a software engineer developer and have that applied knowledge. It's mostly to know the background of computation. That's why you take the algorithms class and formal languages and things like that. So I think the University of Minnesota does a really good balance. I think they're aware that a lot of people want to be software engineers, and so they do have a lot of applied opportunities. I think the program starts off with the basic exposure through a simple language like Python. So you're not worrying about syntax and pointers, but you're just going directly into programming basics. And then from there, it goes into here's some object oriented. Here's what functional programming is, machine architecture, save the background. And it allows you to learn the fundamentals and then get into some tracks. So the University of Minnesota offered the security track, and I was able to follow that. It's sort of an emphasis in security matters that included operating systems, security, networks, things of that nature. So there was that applied stuff later on, but it also had somewhat of a research focus. I think a lot of courses taught teamwork. They discourage collaboration when it 
can become cheating, of course. So they reserve that for the later stuff, like an intro to software engineering. Here's how you should work with the team. And here's how you should manage your code contributions to a repository and branch management. So I think it's structured well, where you have the individual learning, you get into some teamwork, then you get into a very dedicated area of focus. Marissa, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah. So to me, schools just don't really offer security courses. At least they didn't when I was in school. I believe, like Austin was saying, some schools are starting to or do offer it more now. But even when I was in the school, there wasn't much of a focus on coding securely. So I absolutely agree with what Austin was saying. It was mostly just teaching you some of the basics. And I think more expecting you to research it on your own or have your company train you on that. And I know schools are rushed for time on what they can and can't teach students. And they're mostly just kind of covering the basics. But I think that having some more exposure to to secure coding practices and the option to learn more about cybersecurity through a degree or at least a bit through an elective course would be very beneficial to students to help in deciding their career path or just getting some more exposure for them. And, you know, I think that's also one of the benefits that that's by you program that it helps do that. I think the University of Minnesota has added some more security courses, but at least when I took it, the security course was, well, intro to security is what it was called, but that was a graduate level course. And then I think there's an even further graduate level course that would be higher up, but I never got around to taking something like that. It covered high level stuff like host-based security and network and cryptography. And then the other stuff, I guess, was just going deeper into topics that could be applied to security. I think a lot of security is knowing how things work so that you can figure out how to break them. So just knowing how to develop code can help. I think if you get into secure development specifically, that obviously helps even more. But as long as you have that exposure to how the applications or the network work, then I think you can figure out where you can go wrong with that. Of course, you have to be told, why am I allocating this amount of space when you start writing in C? And that's not something I really realize until security. And they realize, oh, that's why I should be really paying attention to that. I definitely wrote some bad programs. Yeah, with software security in particular, one thing that both of you kind of echoed resonates really well with me. And I've been telling people all along who are interested in starting a career in cybersecurity that until you truly understand how systems are built, you're not going to truly understand how to break them or even if not breaking them, how to make them misbehave and do something that they're not intended to do. So that's where I think the foundations and, and having a solid education in the science of computation, as Austin puts it, is a good way to start. But ultimately, you know, you do need some mentorship and guidance. You know, some of the coming up with creative ways to break things is more of an art form in many cases. You know, not everyone would think of the same way to break something, but but the more exposure you get, the more experience you get, the better you get at that over time with some hands-on experience. So given both of your viewpoint on the formal education or university education, there must have been certain things that surprised each of you when you started your cybersecurity career. So can you share maybe if there were some cybersecurity misconceptions you had when you started working at NetSpy, or if there was something else that really surprised you when you finally started working full-time? Marissa, do you want to maybe kick us off here? Sure, Bill. Uh, like for me, the thing that I was the most surprised about when pursuing my career was that it was actually a pathway for me because I believe those exact same things. There was no path in school at the time. I always thought that I would go on to be a software developer because I was going to school to become a web or full stack developer. 
and it didn't seem like there was any other path for me. I'd never been exposed to any ethical hacking methodologies or anything like that. I liked technology and I liked coding, and I found it really fun to create something out of nothing. So it just seemed like a given that I'd go on to become a developer. And I think that it was only during my internship that I knew I wanted to go into cybersecurity because when I had any free time, I'd hang out with the information security department and I saw some of the work that they did. I would ask them a lot of questions and research on my own about some of the stuff that I'd learned from them. And there was a really great guy there, Chris, who taught me a lot about security on his off time and different tools that were used and pen testing methodologies that he learned about. And after digging into it for a while, I realized that instead of creating well-formed formulas, I really enjoyed dissecting and explaining them more. Just like you were saying before, Nabil, the computer science program that I went through helped me a lot because I'd already started creating those well-formed formulas and I knew a lot about them, but this was just a different way to apply them and learn how to exploit them. Austin, what about you? Well, I did have a quick thought as she's mentioning the computer science background. We don't require that. There's plenty of people who have been hired with a math background. I think one of our most experienced pen testers has an English background. So it really depends on how trainable you are and how willing you are to learn these topics. So yeah, a computer science background is by no means a requirement to get into security. I don't know if that surprised me, but it's something I've certainly appreciated while working here. I was probably most surprised by the culture around it. To some degree, the job can feel like a dynamic QA test where you're going through forms and making sure that someone coded them properly. And then you go to something like DEF CON and there's a whole hacker subculture to computer science, which really caught me off guard when I wasn't around that. I wasn't around people who were incredibly passionate about security and security culture like that in college. The workplace. I think there's an ironic touch to it when we talk about movies like Hackers, but then seeing how passionate people are at these conferences is pretty eye-opening. The thing, if I can add a little bit of my perspective that I've seen over time, is often it's actually helpful if you don't have a computer science background as well, since some of the really good testers and hackers that I've met, they really can bring a new perspective and new insights from their world when they come back and, and apply it to pen testing. So, you know, although it's definitely nice to have a computer science background, it's by no means a prerequisite. You can learn, if you're passionate about it, you can learn learn the technology, learn how things work and figure out how to break them. So kind of speaking in that vein, if the two of you had to kind of define what type of people make good pen testers, like certain skill sets, certain traits, certain behavior, what comes to mind? And Austin, maybe you can kick us off here. I think pen testing, at least in this career, isn't just identifying vulnerabilities, but also wanting to help with the remediation aspect of them. So there needs to be some helpful nature, some sort of empathy for the developers and the organizations. When I see critical vulnerability that may expose customer information, it can be kind of exciting, but also in that moment, you need to appreciate the severity of it. Helping the customer needs to be the priority. Helping to explain that well and helping them understand how to best remediate the issue is of the utmost importance. 
a lot of these developers may not be aware of security subject matter as well as you are. And so you have to be a good teacher where you give these lessons about here's why this is severe. Here's the impact that you can have from it. Here's why it should be a top priority. And then you also need to justify that to different levels. So you need to be a good communicator above all else. And I think you need to have empathy and passion. And beyond that, a creative mind. You're going into these applications that people have been developing. Uh, they all have different backgrounds. They've all been doing this for different amounts of time and different styles and you need to be able to think well if they made it in this way how can i break it in this way and you need to be very fluid in your methodology marissa what about you i agree with everything austin said i'm just gonna add a few additional ones um, if you're a person who likes research puzzles asking a lot of questions and problem solving then you've got this and you can do it those are the skills that will help you thrive yeah, if you find a SQL injection and it needs a really specific type of payload to make it work, there's a point where that can be a puzzle or a point where it could be tedious. But I think for most people, it, it stays in the puzzle territory. Yeah, my favorite ones are blind SQL injections and, and how to come up with a way to extract data through a blind SQL injection vulnerability. And those can be a lot of fun to solve, but they can be time consuming and frustrating at times as well. Yeah, Auntie, uh, who helped me with that reverse engineering before, he's like the blind sequel master in my mind. Maybe some people are trying to take his throne now that we have more people, but he's had some seven different layers of unions to make things work. That's awesome. I don't know how you decide to keep trying for more and then it suddenly works. That's the tough thing about blind sequels is when do you give up and when do you think you're onto something? That's a learned skill. For sure. All right. Well, one thing we like to do on this podcast is talk about non-work related things that people like to do, you know, outside of work. So beyond just pen testing or security projects that you guys work on, what are some things you enjoy doing outside of work? Austin, maybe you can kick us off here. Back in elementary school, we had these iMac G3s, those old fruit color ones that maybe makes me sound a little young to some people, maybe old to some other people that are listening. But I always wanted to have one of those and preserve it, at least to show future offspring someday. This is what I grew up with. And so I finally decided, well, I see them around all the time. I might as well get one of those. And restoring that and understanding how it works at a hardware level kind of well, as much as I can, they're pretty complicated. And then that grew into collecting other things I started to see like old IBM PC convertibles and Apple IIs and old compact Macintoshes. So there's a little hoard brewing in my basement right now with those. And they're, they're fun to take down apart to fix up. You can get a little mad at Steve Jobs and you see his design influences over Steve Wozniak's and you realize how awful they are to work on. But that's part of the fun with those old designs. So there's a little bit of collecting and tinkering going on with me. Someday it'd be fun to do some sort of application development there. But the amount of time I have to learn basic and Pascal is low. It's a low priority. Well, and not to sound too old, the first programming language I learned was Pascal and C, C++. But that sounds like a lot of fun. And those iMacs definitely revolutionized how you know people use computers today with their UI and interface and everything. Just the history behind those is very rich. I've been watching a lot of documentaries over time on how it's influenced people. So that's that's great to hear. It's nice to see Apple return to the fun colors, too. I like that with the iMacs, where the computer wasn't so much an appliance. It was like a fun learning tool. That's true. And when I see you next, Austin, we have to talk about when you think the new iMac Pros are going to come out, because that's what I'm waiting for, to buy another computer. I want a new iMac Pro. Well, Marissa, what do you like to do outside of work? 
I enjoy spending time with my pet cocktail kiwi. Uh, she just likes to hang out on my shoulder, sit on up to during the workday, and then we just hang out afterwards. She'll just be chilling on my shoulder while I'm playing video games or reading a book. Sometimes she'll try to sample my book, you know, just eat some of it. She really enjoys literature. She's also a hacker bird, which is kind of a fun fact. When I was doing training in Nets by You, she once ran across my keyboard and entered a random string with a lot of exploit characters. And I sent the string and exposed some sensitive data in the server response. So I just call her my little hacker bird sometimes. What you're saying is you have an unfair advantage because you have a hacker assistant with you on your engagements. I do. She's the best. She's my little inspiration. How old is Kiwi? She's nine years old. Oh, wow. Okay. And what's a typical lifespan for someone like her? Let's see, a typical lifespan is about 15 years. They can live up to 30, though. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Well, a lot more pen testing for Kiwi to come, I guess. Well, thank you both for your time. This was fun, informative, and I'm so glad we could have this conversation. And I hope to see both of you in person again real soon. Yeah, thanks, Nabil. Yeah, thanks for having us on. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.